Go. Okay, so we're coming this morning to lesson three in our study of the attributes of God. And I thought I would go ahead and deal this morning with the subject of immutability. We've dealt already with kind of an introductory lesson on this, and then two lessons on the self-existence, the self-sufficiency of God. And so now we're coming to this next attribute, the immutability of God. Now, I understand that generally we do these in a different order because God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And so it's somewhat traditional to deal with those three attributes in that particular order. But our sister Angie Bogus has asked me a hard question. And I told her that I would answer her question. And her question deals specifically with this subject of immutability. And I thought it would be good to just go ahead and deal with that today. I'm going to be gone the next two Sundays, so Pastor Kimber will be here the next two Sundays. I'll be back one Sunday, and then I'll be gone another Sunday, the last Sunday of March. Um, and then, I'm sorry, the last Sunday of February. And then when we come back, um, when I get back in March, we'll be you know, back to a regular routine here. But I thought I would go ahead and deal with this particular subject of immutability uh, and simultaneously try to give an answer to Angie's question because once you hear the question, um, it, it, it is a big question. It is a difficult question for us to wrestle with and for us to understand and try to wrap our heads around. But let's begin with some definitions here. What are we talking about when we talk about immutability? Well, this attribute, the immutability of God, means that God does not change. So what we're dealing with is this term mutable. So what does it mean to be mutable? Well, that simply means to be liable to change. We're arguing from Scripture that God is not liable to change. Now, here's something interesting. When we talk about this particular attribute, we're saying that there is something true about us that is not true of God. We are mutable. We are changeable. And we'll see later that that is a glorious truth, and that's a wonderful truth to understand that we are mutable. Because if we were immutable, well, we'd be in a world of trouble. We are mutable. But God is immutable. He is not mutable. He cannot change. God never differs from himself. Remember when we talked about the self-existence of God, one of the things that we argued there from that passage in Exodus when God said, I am that I am, is that we really have to always refer to God in the present. God is. God always has been. God always will be. So obviously there's past and there's future. But God is. God is outside of time. He, he has relationship to time. He created time. But he is outside of time. And he is unchangeable. 
Now, this is obviously very different from us. Because for a moral being to be able to change, it means that one of three things has to happen. And so I've outlined these for you here on the first page of your notes. The, the first two are on the first page, then turn the page. But the first one is for, for a moral being to change, he has to go either from better to worse or the other way, from worse to better. So, so something has to change about him morally. He has to go from good to better, from bad to good, bad to good to better to best to, to some uh, system in there. But God cannot go from better to worse. He cannot go from good to better or good to worse or any direction that way. God cannot be less holy or more holy than he already is and than he always has been. He cannot change in the moral fabric of his character. The second thing that would have to happen is he must go from a place of immaturity to maturity or vice versa, immaturity to maturity. Well, God cannot be more or less developed than he already is and always has been. And we can look at maturity from different perspectives, from the perspective simply of growth, or we could look at it from the perspective of an emotional maturity or immaturity. We can't talk about that when it talks when we talk of God. God does not have emotions, though in the anthropomorphic way, God does describe emotions to us for unto us to understand him. But God is not emotional. The third one is he must have some addition or subtraction to his parts in order to change. Well, any addition to God would mean that there was some previous deficiency. Any addition to God would mean that there is something added to him that makes him better. Well, God needs nothing added to him. He is completely self-sufficient and self-existent in himself. He needs nothing. Any subtraction from God would mean that there was some unnecessary excess. There's, any subtraction from him would mean that there is something that he could do without. Well, there is nothing extra in God. He is perfectly self-existent and self-sufficient in himself. And so we've dealt with that subject of, of self-existence and self-sufficiency. And so that attribute of God demands the unchangeable character of God. And so let's look at some scripture passages. I've just printed these out for you, so you can just read them in your notes. Um, we'll turn up the passage in Genesis later, but look at Numbers 3, 19 to 20. Now, bonus points for anybody that can tell me who is speaking. Numbers 23. Read the verse, that's fine. Bonus points for anybody who tells me who is talking. What? Balaam. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Balaam. No, it is Balaam. So it is Balaam who is talking there. And he's giving this prophecy 
you remember the story, Balak has hired Balaam to go and to curse Israel. And basically what verses 19 and 20 are saying is, I can't do that. I can't curse Israel because God has not cursed them. And God can't change. God has blessed them. And God can't change his blessing into a curse. So God's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Now, what had God said, and what had God spoken? Well, God had said, and God had spoken that these are his people. He had entered into a covenant relationship with them, a covenant of blessing with them, and God can't turn back from that. He cannot lie. He cannot go against the covenant promises that he had already made to his people. Behold, he, Balaam's still talking, Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and God hath blessed. I can't reverse it. I can't do different than what God has already done and said. God cannot change his covenant relationship with man. The next one's Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 14. So here's Solomon saying, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. It is permanent. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. It can't change. God, God doeth it, that men should fear before him. And so when we talk about the unchangeable nature of God, one of the results that it should produce in us is that awe and reverential fear of God. Because God is permanent. God doesn't change. We're so different from that. Malachi 3.6, this is kind of the classic verse on this. For I am the Lord, I change not. There you go. So you just have the blanket statement. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now, there's context here, obviously, in, in Malachi 3, but the sons of Jacob deserved to be consumed, right? They deserved consumption. But God doesn't change. God had already told them, I'm not going to consume you. And because he doesn't change, his people are not going to be consumed. That's a great gospel truth for us. Hebrews 13.8, so this is applied specifically to Christ. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Again, a pretty clear statement of Scripture concerning Christ, that he also is unchangeable. He is the same as he always was and will be the same forever. James 1.17, another classic verse here. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And so that's just a King James way of saying, with him is no change. God does not pivot on his hinges. God does not change his mind. God is not capricious. God is the same, always, no change in him. And so what's the application of this before we get to this um, big question that we'll deal with here in just a moment? 
Well, I put four points of application here. Since God never changes, then we don't need to fear that God will somehow change his mood, his attitude toward us, and that he will suddenly become angry with us for no reason. God has, has told us promises. He's told us his, his covenant. What is the covenant? We, we could summarize it simply by saying that God has promised blessing for obedience, and he has promised punishment for disobedience. That's how God operates. That's, that's what God has promised us. Blessing for obedience, punishment for disobedience. God is never going to change the terms of that covenant. He's not going to just become randomly angry for, for no reason. His love and His favor toward us is constant. It cannot be diminished. And so we'll, we'll, we'll deal with this later in another lesson in a kind of a more full way, but showing how all of the attributes of God are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And we talk about this all the time when we, we talk about that catechism question. But God can't love you any more than He already does. Now, how many Christians really live their Christian life and their whole Christian experience is this chasing of the tail to try to get God to like me more? If I could just do more, then God will be more favorably disposed to me. If I could just do more, then God will bless me more. And we, we really operate in terms of a works-based sanctification, a works-based reward system. We want to, you know, we want the prize box. You know, it's like we're all in kindergarten, and we want to do good for God, something from the prize box. Well, that's not the way God operates. God cannot love you more than He already does. He can't be more favorably disposed to you than He already is. He doesn't change. The second one, the Lord's purposes, His plans, the doctrines of God, the, what, we, what we read in Scripture is immutable. It's not going to change. God's promises aren't going to change. The doctrine of salvation is not going to change. The doctrine of eternal punishment is not going to change. There is nothing about his purpose that has ever been thwarted. God has never put a plan in motion that has been train wrecked. Nothing changes of his. He is constant. He is consistent. A third one is that simply the security of your salvation rests on the fact that God is unchangeable. That really is Malachi's argument. The sons of Jacob are not consumed because the Lord doesn't change, even though they deserve to be consumed. And you think of yourself, right? You're, you're saved, you're born again, but you sin. And you sin horribly. And Satan would tell you, you know, dude, you really messed up. And because you messed up so bad, God's just going to write you off. Well, no, God doesn't do that. God doesn't consume those that he's already entered into covenant relationship with. So the security of your salvation rests on the fact that God is immutable. And then the fourth one is that it is a mercy that God created us to be mutable. Or else we would be locked in 
sin. We would be locked in punishment. But we can change. Repentance is a change in us. It is a change of mind and a turning in the opposite direction. This is one of the things we'll talk about answering Angie's question here in just a moment. But the, the Hebrew verb for repentance is the verb shuv, means to turn. And as you look at that word, how it's used consistently throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that its primary illustration is an about face. It is a going in one direction, you stop, you turn around, and you go in the other direction. Now, there's about six different Hebrew verbs that mean to turn. One of the verbs that means to turn is to go in a path and to turn off course, to veer off course. Well, that's not the word that's used for repentance. There's another verb, to turn, that really would give us the idea of a cycle kind of thing, like a, a tornado would turn around and around in circles. Well, that's not the idea of repentance either. True repentance is not you, you turn from it and back to it and away from it and back to it and away from it. That's not the word either. Repentance is an about face. It, it is a complete change of direction. Not, not a veering off course, like I'm going toward evil and I'm going to kind of go away from evil. No, it's about face, going the other direction. And so it's a mercy that we are able to change, that a liar can become truthful, that a thief can start to work, that someone who's faithless can be faithful, etc., on and on down the list. And so it's a mercy that we are changeable and that God changes us. He works in us by his sovereign power. And so now to Angie's question. So turn to Genesis chapter 6. There are 38 occurrences of Angie's question in the Old Testament. So this is not insignificant. 38 times this language is used. We're not going to look at all of them, obviously. Um, we'll look at just two for illustrative purposes. So Genesis 6, verses 5 to 7. Now, before we read this, let me just remind you of the fact that when we read of the six days of creation, God created this, that, and the other thing, and behold, it was good, right? It was good. And then he gets to the last one, and it was very good. Okay. So everything God made was very good, and that's, that's the way it's left at the end of the six days of creation. By the time you get to Genesis 6... You can, you can do the math. You can make a chart and do the math. About 2,400 years, 2,400 years of world history have flown by in like six pages, right? four or five pages in your Bible, whatever. Approximately 2,400 years. That's not the exact number, but rough enough. Okay. So the population of the earth has grown exponentially. The earth is very, very populated. And we read in Genesis 6, verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, 
I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beasts and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. So here's the deal. This that 2,400 years previously was very good, now is completely off the rails. And this verse seems to say to us that God is saying, I wish I had never done it. I wish I had never created anything. This is awful. This is not what I planned. This is not going the way that I intended it to go. So I'm just going to destroy it all. Basically start over. And then we read later, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So he's just going to, I'm just going to wipe it clean. And so the King James language here, it repented the Lord that he hath made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Well, that's a problem for us in light of the fact that we've just defended the fact that God is immutable. God doesn't change. This is a problem that we have to answer, that we have to address. Because the critic, the unbeliever, would come and say, God is not powerful enough to control what he made. What God made got out of hand. And God is not omnipotent. And then God obviously changes because he did a thing, and he wanted the thing to go a certain way, and it didn't go the way he wanted it to go, and so he had to undo it. So he changed. So there's that. Another example, 1 Samuel 15.10. Look at that one. So it's in your notes. You can turn there, but just look in your notes. So here, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. So the people wanted a king. God said, no, you don't, you don't need a king. I'm your king. The people wanted a king. It's like, hey, all the other nations have kings. We want a king. And so the Lord said, okay, fine, you can have a king. And so Samuel anoints Saul to be the king. And what's at the very beginning of 1 Samuel 15? Anybody know this? What's at the beginning of 1 Samuel 15? God told Saul to do a thing. Okay, well, that, that's in there. But it's go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. And Saul went and he didn't do what God said. And so this is, yeah, what's this bleeding? Here's all these animals going. And the Lord said, this guy's a train wreck. Hey, this guy Saul, I wish I had never made him king. Well, what does it mean here that the Lord repented? It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. Well, so these are difficulties that we have to answer. These verses, there's others, seem to indicate that somehow God changed his mind or wished he had done something differently. How do we, how do we answer this question? How do we explain this? And as I said, this, this language happens 38 times. Now, in Genesis, um, we have three of those 38 times. 1 Samuel 15 is another one, and there's other, other places. 
So remember that I mentioned anthropomorphisms. So let's review what's an anthropomorphism. giving human characteristics to God, right? So in literature, in poetry, um, we talk about anthropomorphisms. So it talks about a tree seeing or the branch of a tree stretching out, you know, for something. That's an anthropomorphic statement. But in theology, we are giving, we're using language that we as humans can understand. God is revealing himself in such a way and in language that we can relate to. God is revealing himself. God is not concealing himself. God is revealing himself. And so he's using language that we can understand. So let's go through and let's, let's ask some kind of rhetorical questions here along the way to help us. Like we gotta, we got to funnel our thinking in uh, to where we need to be here. So... These might seem to be off track, but just follow some logic here. When did God start hating sin? Somebody answer that. When did God start hating sin? Always, right? He always has hated it. So I think we can all understand, even before creation, God hated sin. Right? He's always hated sin. He's never not hated sin. Always has he hated sin. So here's the next question. When did God first promise that he would judge sin. When did he first make that declaration that he would judge sin? The, in the garden. So God created Adam, and God said to Adam, here's all these trees, knock yourself out, eat whatever you want, except for this one. This tree, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Okay, so now, um, th this question is in your notes here. But when Adam ate of that fruit, did he surely die? Yes. yes, he did surely die. Now, did he physically die at that moment? No. But he began, he entered into the process of death. And so did God keep his promise, thou shalt surely die? Yes, God kept his promise. He said, if you eat this, you're going to die. Well, he, he died spiritually. That happened instantaneously. But he entered into a process of death. And 930 years later, he literally died. Like physically, he died. Okay? So God kept his word. The third question. Did God give an exact time when that judgment would be fully executed? And so this goes with my Adam thing, right? So in, in the day that thou eatest of, thou shalt surely die. We can say yes and no to that. So the language is, in the day that thou eatest of. So, so there's a time frame. When, when you do this evil thing, you're going to reap the consequences of that. And, and the consequences of that is death. Okay, so now the fourth question. When, I'm quoting this verse, when God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually... Who was the one that changed? Was it God or was it man? It was man who had changed. God created man how? Good, right? So to use Bible language, God created man upright and he hath sought out many inventions. Man was created, according 
the way our catechism answers it, in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. That's how God created man. Now, in those 2,400 years, man changed. Man was not upright. He was only evil continually. And so our fifth question really sums this all up. Did God change or did man change? God didn't change. Man had changed. Right? God had always been of the disposition, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will punish you. That has always been God's MO. That, that's always been God's statement. That has always been God's covenant promise. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will punish you. That, that's always been what God is. God never changed his promise to punish sin. And so here God is communicating in, in this passage in Genesis, God is communicating in language that's understandable to humanity when he says that he is acting in a way that he had not acted in before. Now, he, he had not destroyed the world before because, it, well, we can bring this in. God is long-suffering. God is slow to wrath. That does not mean that he doesn't execute wrath. It just means that he is slow to wrath. God is patient. And God had been patient with man to this point. Now, did God not hate sin and then all of a sudden look up and realize that they were sinning? It's like, hey, I don't like that now. Did, did God change in that sense? No. God hated sin the entire time. But the punishment was not meted out until a point in time. And so from man's perspective, it appeared as if God changed. Although he really never changed. It was man that changed and brought God's wrath and displeasure. So let's, um, let's get into the weeds a little bit here, a little bit more. So I already told you 38 times this happens. So let's dig down a little bit. So the word that's used in Genesis 6 and verse 6, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, is not the word shuv that I told you earlier for repent. It's not the word that means an about face. It's a different word. It's the verb nacham. Now, that verb nacham is used 38 times with God as the subject. It's only used 43 times in the whole Old Testament. So there's only five times. Well, let me, that's not right. In this form, this what's called a stem, this stem of the verb, there's, is used 43 times to get real dorky and nerdy on you in the nephal stem. It's used 43 times. 38 times God's the subject. Only five times somebody or something other than God is the subject. Now, the verb in this stem means to be sorry or to console oneself. It's 
the same word that is translated other places in a different stem that means to comfort. So to be sorry or to console oneself is this particular stem. In the hethiel, which this is the nephal, in the hethiel, which is a different stem, that stem is a causative effect. And so to cause someone to be comforted or to cause someone to be consoled is to comfort them. And so that's where the translation comfort comes from. So the normal word, though, that's used for repent, not the word that's used in Genesis 6, 5, no, 6, 6, not the word used in Genesis 6, 6, is the normal word for repentance is that about face that I, I told you just a moment ago. God cannot do an about face. God doesn't go one direction and turn around and go the other direction. There is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And so I, I use that statement just a moment ago, illustrating that verse, God does not turn on hinges. God is not that way. He is constant. He is consistent. He doesn't change. Another way of dealing with this verse is to understand that the language that is used in Genesis 6, 5, 6, and 7 is strong language to show us God's utter hatred of sin, his absolute disdain for sin and for wickedness. John Calvin, commenting on these verses, I'll read you a quote from him. He says, It is as if God is saying, This is not my workmanship. This is not that man who was formed in my image. That's a quotation from John Calvin. It's as if God is saying, this is not what I created. This is not my workmanship. This is not what's in my image. God created man in his image. And it's man who changed. It's man who went off course. God was always the same throughout. And if God's hatred for sin is described in this language for us, that, 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 sin, that, that the sin in man would bring God to the place for him to say, I wish I had never even created them. How more clearly could God communicate to us that he hates sin? That he wish he had never done it. He wished we had never been here to, to sin against him. And, and, to, and how else could he demonstrate such a hatred to sin? And so that's another line of argument here. Again, we, but we have to come back to the anthropomorphic nature of this. We have clear statements of Scripture. Um, I don't have time for this. Let me, let me tell you this. This may be helpful for you ladies in, in your Bible study stuff that you're doing. One thing that you always need to keep in mind when you come to a verse of Scripture and you're trying to interpret Scripture, and you, know, you get your blue letter Bible and you circle your words and, and what you ladies are doing. Here's one thing you always have to remember. The verse cannot mean what it cannot mean. It can't mean what it can't mean. And so 
this verse, whatever Genesis 6, 5, 6, and 7 mean, it can't mean that God changes. It can't mean that. Because we have enough clear didactic portions of Scripture that teach us God doesn't change. So when we come to this, well, it can't mean that God changes because our, our fundamental presupposition when we interpret Scripture is that the Scriptures don't conflict with themselves. So it can't mean what it can't mean, and it can't mean that God changes. And so it has to mean something different. And that's the, the job of the interpreter to understand, well, if it can't mean that, then what does it mean? And really the only way to answer this in Genesis 6 or any of the rest of them is we have to put it in that category of anthropomorphic. God is just talking in a way that we can relate to, that, that we can understand. But God doesn't change. One last devotional note for you. So the Bible does use this language in relationship to God being grieved that he had created man in the first place. Now, I say it's 38 times. Most of those 38 times, it's actually the other way around from what we have in Genesis. When you come to Jeremiah, when you come to Isaiah, it repents, the Lord repents of the judgment that he was going to execute. He said, I'm going to punish you. Well, then the people either repent, shape up, whatever. And the Lord says, I repent of the evil that I'm going to bring upon you, and I'm going to bless you. And so it's, it's God changing from judgment to blessing. And most of the occurrences are that way. And we rejoice in that, that God is, is merciful. And God does keep his covenant promises to bless obedience. But while the language in Scripture is used this way, that God is grieved that he made man in the first place, it never uses this language in regard to God saving man. God never regrets. He, he never expresses regret for sending his only begotten son to save his people from their sins. And that's the greater sacrifice. That, that's that's the, the greater expense. But not, God never expresses regret in doing that. Instead, it, it speaks of Christ as us being the joy that was set before him. We are the joy that was set before him that caused him to endure the cross, to, to bear the shame and the reproach of that. And so we can circle back to our catechism. God, out of his mere good pleasure, has elected some to everlasting life and has entered into a covenant of grace to save them by a redeemer. So we can joy, rejoice in what Christ has done for us there. So hopefully that does something to answer Angie's question and is helpful for everyone in understanding what we're talking about here. But let's close in prayer now. And if you have any other questions about that, ask Angie. She's the one that started all this. Don't come ask me. So let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you have told us in your word that you don't change and the security of our salvation, our eternal welfare, uh, stands on this bedrock of your unchangeable character. And we 
pray that you would help us in our lives to be consistent, that we would be faithful to our promises, uh, faithful to our, our word that we give to one another, and faithful to our word that we give to you, that when we repent of sin, that we would truly turn uh, from it and serve you instead. I pray that you'll bless our worship service here to follow. We pray for Pastor Kimbrough as he preaches, that you would fill him with your spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.